God. Praise God. Our Redeemer lives. Amen. What a glorious day the Lord has given us. If, if you got up early enough, snow, right? <laughs> to remind us of the power of our Savior's blood. Though your sin is as scarlet, we are made white as snow in Christ. And then sunshine. The life that we have through the Savior who rose from the grave. What a privilege it is to hear now from our Savior, from His Word, and I invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel, John chapter 20, John 20. And then once you've found John 20, keep a little sticky note there or the bulletin or something and turn to, in your Old Testament, to Psalm 22, Psalm 22. The whole book is to do with Jesus, isn't it? And here is Jesus in Psalm 22. You may be wondering, why are we looking at this this wonderful phrase from the psalm, you have answered me? What, What does that have to do with Easter, do you suppose? Who is this you? And what is the answer? And who is me? That wonderful little phrase in Psalm 22 is Easter according to the Psalms. The empty tomb is God's answer to the cry of his son who died for the sins of his people. The Savior who cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken by God, so his people need not ever be forsaken by God. Dies for them, and then says in the victory he has won over death, you have answered me, you have answered me. So here is the empty tomb right in your Old Testament. The Son, in covenant with the Father, has come to live righteously for his people, to live out in his humanity the very holiness of God, and then to die in place of his people, to to, to bear upon himself the the judgment, the, the just wrath of God for his people's sins. And he has done so. Amen? And now the Son exclaims to the Father, having been raised from the dead in the power of an endless life, a life he imparts to his own, those who know him by faith, you have answered me. He is risen, the psalmist exclaims. The tomb is empty. But here's the thing. More can be said of that phrase, you have answered me. The empty tomb is God's answer to his people's sin problem. Your sin problem. The empty tomb is God's answer to his people's purpose. What is the point of you and me? And the empty tomb is God's answer to his people's destiny. 
I urge you today to think about your sin problem and your purpose and your destiny. You who are in Christ, rejoice today because of his work for you through the power of his life and his death at Calvary and his resurrection alone. Your sins are forgiven. Do you believe that? Never will you give an account to God for your sin. And you are being restored even now as an image bearer of God. That's your purpose. To bear the image of God. To reveal the glory of God. And even your physical death will simply be for you a gateway to unending life in God's presence with all of his people. Do you believe this? Do you ever think about this? Because more of us would smile if more if we did. There's too many of us walking around like we need another Rolades, you know? This is the best news ever. It doesn't get better. To believe upon Christ this morning is to live every moment of every day in the direction of this future inheritance that is eternal life in a real, tangible, world made new. A new heaven and a new earth without even the fragrance of sin about it. Think about that. This is your future. And I don't want you to take it from me. Take it from this risen Jesus who cries out to the Father in glad praise. You have answered me. I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. Now that is the empty tomb prophesied. In other words, David uh, in the Psalms, um, singing of the, the, the greater David who came and accomplished uh, what we've just seen. But we are blessed to live in an age where we, we don't look a, ahead to the empty tomb. We look back toward the empty tomb, don't we? And I, and I want us to do that now uh, as we turn to John's gospel. We'll get back to Psalm 22 soon, fairly soon. Um, the empty tomb is no longer prophecy. It's historic fact. We're dealing with facts this morning when we speak of the resurrection of Jesus. Not ideas, not concepts, not stories set against all the other religious stories that are out there. We're dealing with facts. John the Apostle was one who was in the midst of the assembly that first Easter morning, wasn't he? And it was a small assembly then. A lot smaller than the the assembly we have gathered here today. John was among just a few of the brethren, the the, the men and women like us, who, who first affirmed the reality of the risen King, the Lord Jesus. And yet it was this very small assembly that was used of God to reach their world with the good news of the cross 
and the empty tomb. What a a challenge that is to us, assembled as we are today. Let's just be reminded of the facts. Verse 1 of John 20, it says, Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. Peter therefore went out and the other disciple and were going to the tomb. So they both ran together, and the other disciple outran Peter and came to the tomb first. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen cloths lying there, yet he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the handkerchief that had been around Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded together in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who came to the tomb first went in also, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not know the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. I wonder, are you ever weak in faith? Do you ever experience that? Weakness in faith? You ever, you ever have that thought that another had before you, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief? I want you to be encouraged by verse 9. For as yet they did not know the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. What, what scripture did these first disciples not know? And what what is even meant by that? Well, Psalm 22, for sure. Psalm 16, for sure. They sang from that hymn book, the Psalms. The Scriptures made clear to them, as to us, He must rise again from the dead. The God of the covenant had pledged to give a people to his son. And the son has purchased them with his own blood. And the son must rise again from the dead. It's all over the Bible. It was all over their Bible. The Lord's anointed. Jesus is a living king, a risen king, not a dead king. How can they not know this? Good men and women that they are. First century church people, if you will. It's not until they experience the risen Christ that their hearts grasp the glorious reality of the gospel applied to them. And I am praying that among us today, church people that we are, that the Lord will be gracious to allow any who simply know the facts as they've been read to actually come to know Jesus by faith. 
Not until all the pieces fell into place for them that first Easter Sunday did the small assembly of Christ's brethren believe. And I wonder this morning, will all the pieces fall into place for you so that you might believe upon Christ? Did you notice as we read from John's Gospel that there was one word that was repeated again and again? Anybody notice that? It's, it's the word tomb, isn't it? John wants us to know the place of the resurrection. Now the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And then in verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And then verse 3 shows us Peter and John going to the tomb. Verse 4, John just can't help himself. He has to point out that he got there first to the tomb. And then verse 6, you know, Peter close behind but still in last place. Went into the tomb. John wants us to know the place of the resurrection. And I got stuck on that. Why is that? So you're stuck on it too, aren't you? Why is the word tomb repeated so many times? Where else would a resurrection occur but at a tomb? And yet there it is. The tomb, the tomb, the tomb. Think of it this way. How many tombs do you suppose this world has in it? I mean, going all the way back to that Cain and Abel thing, how many... See, they did that in the first service, too. It's a rhetorical question. You don't have to answer it. You can just let it kind of hang there and think about it. This world, this earth, is full of dark, damp holes dug by the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve for the dead. Sin has brought death to every man and woman on this planet. Every person in this room. Every person in our East Campus across the hall there in Priestley Hall. (laughs) Touched by the curse of sins. No exemptions. Do you realize, friend, that your life is a steady journey toward a tomb? A tomb with your name on it. You don't think about it that much. But however old you are this morning, you got to admit, you're surprised you're that old, aren't you? (laughs) So are some of us. How did that happen? Young people, how is it that you're already in high school or college? Do you, do you remember thinking that people in college were like elderly? I mean, that, that's when you start collecting your benefits, right? No. You in your 20s and 30s, some of you married and you have children of your own now, and you're thinking, good heavens, I, I still don't know what I want to be. I don't know what I want to do when I grow up. And, and here, look at you, you're all grown up, aren't you? Kids of your own. How did that happen? I used to delight to tell our seniors 
that I was too young to be in their Monday gathering called Speeders. You think that's funny, don't you? And now, and now I'm a speeder myself. I qualify anyway at 55 and over. Listen, the feet of people like us are running steadily toward a tomb. And some of us will get there sooner, and some of us will get there a little later, but it isn't going to change the fact that every single one of us is living his or her days toward a tomb. And this is about the time, if your friend invited you here today, that it's totally fine to say, I thought we were going to be encouraged. Well, we are. The scriptures warn us not to live out our days as if this is not so. Teach us to number our days, says the psalmist in Psalm 90, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. It is wise as opposed to what? Foolish. It is wise to think of the tomb with your name on it. And here's the thing. Jesus spent his entire earthly life thinking about living toward his tomb so that you wouldn't have to live your entire life being afraid of your tomb. Are you hearing this? I wonder if that's why John so deliberately speaks of the place of the resurrection, the tomb. And he writes as well of the person, the Lord Jesus of the resurrection. Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb as early as she possibly can after the Sabbath. Uh, Early morning, it's still dark. (laughs) The Lord's anointed, the creator of all things has risen on this day even before the sun he had placed in the sky had risen. And Mary is constrained by love, isn't she, to hurry to that tomb. And yet she's looking for what? She's looking for Jesus' lifeless body. She's looking for a corpse. What else would you find at a tomb? Verse 1 says, she saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And how interesting it is that her first thought is not that Jesus has risen from the dead. Although he had promised to do so. Although she sang from Israel's hymn book about this resurrection. The very thing that should have encouraged her, the empty tomb actually brought her discouragement. And that's how faith is sometimes. Weak faith is like that, isn't it? Weak faith takes what it sees and feels and forgets what God has promised. And it's instantly discouraged. Maybe even hopeless. I wonder if there are any here today weak in faith. In this way. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. And we do not know where they have laid him. But you know we see strong faith in John's narrative as well don't we? John's feet. (laughs) Washed by 
the Lord, as they had been just the, the, the previous Thursday, ran swiftly to the tomb. And he says in verse 8 that, that he came to the tomb first, went in also, and he saw and believed. John saw a little more than Mary, didn't he? But he didn't see Jesus risen. And yet he believed. The grave clothes were there in the tomb. And and the handkerchief that had been wrapped around the Lord's head like a turban had been lain separately, folded neatly. What an interesting detail. John saw what Mary had seen a little bit more, and yet he immediately takes it as evidence that Jesus has risen. And strong faith is like that. Strong faith takes what it sees and feels and measures it against what God has promised and believes God. Why does John tell us that these grave clothes are left behind as they are, do you suppose? What an interesting detail. Lazarus was called out of the grave with his grave clothes. Why not Jesus? Well, Lazarus is going to need grave clothes again, isn't he? Maybe not the same ones. I don't know how that worked. But Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, the Scripture says. Meaning what? Jesus is the first to rise from the dead, never to die again. And all who belong to him live with the hope that though there is a tomb with your name on it, Through the power of his resurrection, you live with the hope that you will rise, never to die again. Do you have that hope? And if you are to have eternal life, as opposed to eternal damnation, you must cling to this Jesus by faith. What kind of faith? Weak faith or strong faith? Don't answer it. I'm baiting you. Don't go there. John sees the person of the resurrection, the Lord Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh with eyes of faith. John believes, he tells us. And I think we're meant to just pause here and ask, um, do you believe Are there any among us strong in faith to believe in this way? Well, let's look at verses 10 through 17. Is this the key to salvation then? Strong faith as opposed to weak faith? Then the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary stood outside by the tomb weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the tomb And she saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head, the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. Then they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Now when she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? 
And she, supposing him to be the gardener, said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, which is to say, teacher. And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. John apparently went back home, as did Peter, but Mary stayed near the tomb. Why? Why does the one with weak faith stay? Did you notice that it's the one with weak faith who sees Jesus first? Mary's faith and hope had all but died. But clearly her love for Jesus has not. (laughs) That's why anyone stays at a tomb, right? I mean, why do we linger today at grave sites? Why do we go still today to grandma and grandpa's grave site? Or a spouse's grave site? A child's grave site? Why? For love's sake. For love's sake. Mary feared that she had lost Jesus, but she is not prepared to desert him. She loves him. She says, I do not know where they have laid my Lord. This is about love, isn't it? I wonder if there is a person here today a bit like this. You have a sense of being weak in faith. In fact, you feel like you're surrounded with people from, with strong faith. And you feel this in the, in the quiet of your own heart. Your hope has all but faded. And I'm asking you, is there not yet a spark of love for Christ in you today? Maybe the fact that you're even here today bears evidence of this. A spark of love for Christ. Maybe the spark of love toward Christ is being kindled in you even now. And you can't explain it. But there it is. Mary's love for Christ compels her to linger though she is weak in faith. Her Love for Christ compels her even to speak to the angels. Did you notice that? She speaks to the two angels as if she speaks to angels every day. That's just weird. What's going She's blinded by love for Jesus. Mary thought Jesus was the gardener. <laughs> and in a strange sense, he was. And is, because it is Jesus who planted that seed of faith in Mary. When he cast those demons out of her, as he did, the scripture says. And it is Jesus who 
plants the seed of faith in his people today by the Spirit. It's Jesus who lights the spark of love for him in his people. Has that happened to you? And it's Jesus who fans the flame of that little spark. That's what's happened to Mary, you see. She loves her Lord. So what do you do? Well, did you notice the little detail that Jesus actually makes Mary turn to see him? Did you pick up on that? He stands out of sight from her so that she has to turn when he says her name, Mary. And she turned and said to him, Rabboni, teacher, master. I got stuck on that. Maybe you need that little nudge this morning that Mary needed to turn. You know, there's another word for turn in Scripture. It's the word repentance. And you turn to Christ in repentance when you've put your hope in everything and seen that everything else is rubbish compared to Christ. And you turn from all that, and you turn from your sin, and you turn to Christ. Turn to the one who planted that spark there in the first place. What an experience it is to be weak in faith and yet still hear Jesus calling your name. Mary heard. And don't miss the fact that she instinctively reached for Christ. Are you hearing this? I wonder if there are any among us today who are being called to reach to Christ. Just turn and reach to Christ as your Savior. Weak faith or strong faith grasp the same Savior. He's the strong one. Amen? Jesus saves all who turn to him and reach for him. He is the strong one for his people. How can you know? He's risen. The tomb is empty. The Father has answered the Son. Verse 17, Jesus said to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to my Father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. This is an echo of what the psalmist was singing about. This covenant between the Father and the Son God's people are are brought into this blessed covenant of redemption. Think of what Jesus is saying. The Savior's Father is your Father when you belong to Him. His God is your God as you cling to Him. What was it that the psalmist sang? I will declare your name to my brethren, my brothers and sisters. (laughs) He 
must rise from the dead. That, that, that is God's promise. And it's a promise kept. Do you know the person of the resurrection? As you live out your days toward a tomb with your name on it. Well, John also shows us the peace of the resurrection. Look at verse 18. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord and that he had spoken these things to her. Then the same day, at evening, being the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. The incarnation began with a proclamation of peace, didn't it? Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. Well, with whom is God pleased? How does that happen? Well, you think of Jesus at his baptism, and the Gospels tell us that the Father said of the Son, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And so the Son now says to his own, peace be with you. As the Father is pleased with the Son, so he is pleased with all who belong to the Son. Are you in Christ? Then rejoice. This peace is yours. God is as pleased with all who believe as he is pleased with his own son. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is good news. This is news worth sharing. You who are Christ's brethren, his his brothers and sisters by faith, Share in his victory over sin and sin's hell. Think about this. This life right now, Christian, is the closest to hell you will ever get. And be sure of this, friend. Apart from Christ, this life right now is as close to heaven as you will ever get. God's people will never know the judgment of his wrath for sin. Christ took that upon himself, didn't he, as our substitute. He loves us with an everlasting love. How can you be sure, you wonder? Because the tomb is empty. Because he's risen. And he says to you today, peace be with you. Do you know this peace this morning? I'm not asking you if you've heard this stuff before. I know you have. I'm asking if you know Jesus. Do you know this peace of forgiven sin? Do you know this peace of an an eternal inheritance that cannot be corrupted, that cannot be taken away, that can't even be lost by you? In fact, if you could lose it, you would. And so would I. No offense. John wants us to see 
the place of the resurrection and the person of the resurrection, the peace of the resurrection. And there's just one last thing, the purpose of the resurrection. Look at verse 20. When Jesus had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Do you suppose that's an understatement? (laughs) So Jesus said to them again, peace to you. And then, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. God's elect people are a sent people. Not just a saved people, glorious as that is, a sent people. God's redeemed ones are a sent people, not merely a sanctified people. Waiting for that eternal inheritance. God's great purpose in the resurrection, His great purpose in your salvation in mine, is is His glory. Salvation is of the Lord, and salvation is about the glory of our Lord. And so that takes us back to Psalm 23. Excuse me, Psalm 22, verse 23. Praise the Lord... All you who fear him, honor him, all you descendants of Jacob. Show him reverence, all you descendants of Israel. What's the deal with Jacob and Israel? Well, they are the people of God, the people of promise, the church, if you will. We revere him, do we not? We honor him. We live to praise him. And so Christ speaks through David's psalm prophetically of this great victory shared with his church, the church he is now gathering, the church he has purchased with his own blood. What an unspeakable blessing this is to belong to this family of called out people. And given the privilege of calling others to the Christ of the empty tomb. My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. There it is again. The covenant between the Father and the Son. Jesus, the Son, has redeemed his people with his own blood. And the Father has raised him up in the power of the Holy Spirit and given him a name that is above every name. Amen? Let me just say this. Jesus is not content to confine the celebration of his victory to a small band of believers in Palestine. Aren't you glad for this? And Jesus is not content this day to confine the celebration of his great promise fulfilled to a holiday in the spring. Or is it winter? We don't know. But you, you, get, you get my meaning, right? So the church proclaims this with all of her breath, not just on Resurrection Sunday and not just on Sundays in general. But every day, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over 
the nations. What, what, that is the purpose of the resurrection, isn't it? The glory of God. The call of God to his own to proclaim his glory to the nations. A posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. Wow. Think about what that is saying. What Christ has accomplished is for each successive generation to proclaim. If you know Christ today, you're in that generation that is meant to proclaim him to the next. However many generations there may yet be, we don't know. Each generation has the privilege of proclaiming this glad gospel. He is risen. The Father has answered the Son for his people. Think of it this way. Jesus did not die to make salvation possible. Don't think like that. We have a strong Savior. Jesus died and rose again to make salvation certain for his people. He must rise again from the dead. Amen. Amen. Father, we thank you so much for your answer to your son, Jesus. We thank you this morning for the empty tomb. We thank you, Lord, that you are the one who calls your own to yourself. You have planted in your people faith. You've planted in those who believe a spark of love for you that you are pleased to fan into a great flame. And Lord, I pray that you would do that among us today. Lord, do what only you can do. Plant faith in your people. Fan the flames of love toward you in the hearts of your people. Lord, grow your kingdom among us, church people that we are, that we would believe. And Lord, that we might declare your name to others. And we ask you this, Jesus, for your name's sake. Amen.